Yes, hello, it's Jason Louve. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. This is a really, really good episode. There's been some good episodes lately. The Jessa Reed one was really good. This one's awesome. This is with Greg Kaminsky, who is the host of the esoteric podcast extraordinaire, A Cult of Personality, which many of you may be familiar with. It's been around for 13 or 14 years. Greg is like the OG of occult podcasting. He's been doing, he's been interviewing people from, from deep in for years and years and years and he's just been steady the whole time he's a great great guy and we went pretty deep in this conversation as well talking about um magic but kind of what magic looks like when you've been at it for 20 years moving past it to enlightenment traditions like tibetan buddhism accepting impermanence uh, what does it actually mean to dissolve your ego what does it mean to, you know, on the other side of the tunnel, perhaps, or uh, Greg has a, some great phrases and things to say about that, which you'll really enjoy in this episode. So this was great, great, great. You should definitely check out his podcast. It's a cult of personality, not cult, but a cult. And the website's occultofpersonality.net. I'm sure it's on Apple and all of that stuff. He interviews uh, some great people. So enjoy this episode. We talk a lot about meditation and kind of what I think Greg and I were both happy to talk about a lot, which is are, are these traditions that we consider to be the real deal and the really high octane stuff. Um, you know, the stuff that's interesting 20 years in, the stuff that actually really works, the stuff that really makes progress. The stuff that is not silly, the stuff that does change your life, the stuff that does change your brain, the stuff that does put you on the right path in life, the stuff that is meaningful and enlightening and and truly of spiritual substance. And I think that's probably not going to be any surprise for anyone because I've said this lots and lots and lots on the podcast. It would be the true meditation uh, traditions, uh, particularly from Asia. So specifically things like Vedanta, Raja Yoga, Kriya Yoga, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, what people kind of generally know in the West is Hinduism and Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Vipassana, things like this, the really, really high octane, hardcore meditation traditions, the ones that require serious work, the ones that are challenging, the ones that do undermine your sense of yourself, the ones that in fact may cut against the grain of your entire personality structure and everything you think that you want in life. The stuff is not easy, but it is the stuff that is truly important and truly rewarding and truly awakening. We just released a course on this as well, which I, if I, I, Look, I'm biased because it's me, but I think it's the best meditation course on the internet. It's Mastering Meditation. It's on magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. And it is the full training in the eight limbs of yoga, in Raja Yoga, in the ethics of yoga, and specifically in Asana, in Pranayama, or that's meaning um, breathing techniques for altered states of consciousness and attaining single pointed, uh, single pointed focus in stabilizing a long-term discipline in completely and radically changing every aspect of your life 
for the better of bringing discipline and meaning and structure and enlightenment and forward momentum to your existence of truly doing the great work that's mastering meditation and it's been doing really well people have really been enjoying it i think it's been out for almost two months so i think the first round of students is pretty much coming to the close of it so i'm going to be um, excited to check out some of the testimonials and hopefully share those on the podcast and get people's feedback great great class it's mastering meditation at magic.me m-a-g-i-c-k dot m-e check it out p.s have you gotten our free meditation that we released recently it is a completely free seven minute meditation just to get you started you can get that at start.magic.me start.magic.me completely free you get on our mailing list you get lots of great info you get to find out when new podcast episodes are released you get you know uh, youtube you can find out when youtubes are released special content that you're not going to get anywhere else special blog posts and and videos that are not publicly available that's all for free as well so check that out start.magic.me start.magic.me and with no further ado here's greg I've talked to you once before because I was on your podcast when I like, but this is like like three or four years ago when I was promoting my book. That's right, and that was definitely one of my favorite. Like I did so many podcasts for that book, and I think that one was maybe my favorite because it was the one where we could actually like dig into the occult, like the like the nerd details about everything, you know, like the engineering stuff. And so I'm super happy to have you on the show. I wanted to let's just start off with this. I mean, you've been you've been interviewing like deep like deep in occult people for 13 14 years and i i I mean your your podcast is like goes probably the the furthest in you know into into the details so i want to ask two questions but my first one is what do you after all of this what is magic to you now magic is being able to perceive understand and know what I am, what the world is, the relationship between those, the proper perspective of that, and then being able to act from that perspective in every moment, which I cannot do, but I try nonetheless. Why, 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 why is that? <laughs> because the view of reality is so radical and my moment to moment experience of it does not always support that perspective so it's sometimes a struggle to actually be able to hold perception in that way and so i always tend to just default to normal human way of seeing things and then act from that way and that doesn't work (laughs) (laughs) so when you're you're not seeing things the normal human way how do you see things Well, in that case, you know, I am just a node of perceptivity within a sphere of divinity, and there's no separation between any phenomena that appear. But that doesn't work for going to the store? 
Well, it works perfectly for going to the store, but what happens is someone maybe like cuts in front of me in the parking lot and takes my parking spot and then that that entire way of seeing reality just poof. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's I funny, right? Really practiced it enough or I don't I haven't done enough, you know, virtuous acts to really be able to overcome that tendency maybe who knows yeah it's funny how it comes down to that like i was i think saying on the last podcast you know when i when i first started out in magic it was like yes i want to like you know save the world and all this stuff and and now it's just like i all i want is dear lord please just one more second between thought you know impulse and reaction like that, that i'm happy with that you know <laughs> yeah we're gonna take 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 steps baby steps sometimes okay so then my next question was going to be what did you think magic was when you started at least when you started the podcast maybe let's say that yeah that's a interesting thing i at back when i started the podcast i had some sense that that magic was some way to both change worldly circumstance and change my own sort of experience of the world uh and that's not untrue it's just uh i think a sort of a limited view of what's happening but yeah i think just over time it kind of evolved and changed and i think that's probably a good thing why do you say it's a good thing because life isn't static it's dynamic and if if we're not changing if we're not growing then we're dying so I should be changing who I am, you know, every moment, but you know, every day at the very least, I would hope. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. I, this is something that I notice in basically, well, not, I mean, I would say pretty much all the cult practitioners. I mean, they get like, if they've been in it for a while, there's definitely a point that magic people hit where, you know, they've done so much spooky stuff and they've been through, you know, so many crazy experiences there definitely seems to be a point where people just kind of like flatline and become interested in Buddhism or, you know, Taoism or just meditation and observing their experience and, and, and kind of the type of stuff that you're, you're talking about. And as I'm talking, I would suspect I'm one, my question is, what do you think the switch is that gets flipped that causes that to happen. And I'm, as I'm saying it, it occurs to me that when you're doing magic a lot, you're, you know, kind of like watching a light show that your consciousness is projecting. And then eventually you just become interested in like, well, what is, you know, what's the source of, you know, what is the consciousness itself? What is, what is, what is, what, what is thinking? What is thought? You know, if that resonates yeah, with you, that's, that's the good sort of path to trace that change of interest because I think it was Nisar Gardata who said something along the lines of like the child plays with the toy but the mother doesn't care about the toy the mother's watching the child right and this is analogous to like consciousness and awareness right we're not we shouldn't be so concerned with the the content of the mind as much as the context of the mind Hmm. 
Interesting. But, and so when you say context, what did you have in mind? <laughs> that's, well, that's sort no of like intended. this notion of like, there is a, in many ways, mechanical sort of a consciousness. It's very attenuated and narrowed down, but awareness itself is not, it's fully open and spacious and vast and, and that is really sort of through spiritual practice and various methods, one can begin to get a taste of that sort of open, vast awareness that's not the sort of narrowed down consciousness that we're used to. And it feels free. And yeah, uh, that, that's, I, I totally agree. I mean, that was beautifully put. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that definitely seems to resonate with my experience. And we are kind of locked into our narrow focus, as you, as you put it, and we identify with it and we think it's us and we build up stories around it and we don't want to get out of it because we associate that with death or non-existence or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I, I put real like overly obvious metaphors on this as well. Like that, you know, consciousness is a vast ocean, but it's kind of like the entire internet where you are your own individual computer that's interacting with it. But consciousness itself is this vast um, field that seems to be shared also. It's a, it's a vast shared experience that we're all, that we're all in. I don't really think that we're as isolated as we think we are in that. And uh, that nothing doesn't, you know, everything affects that. Uh, thinking obviously affects that. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm interested in the, as you say, the context, the totality of it. Like I've never really been interested in like parapsychology or like trying to prove siphon, like any, like, like this stuff or, or even, you know, you know, questioning the reality of magic or if things can be proven because like all of these things are just conventions for t talking about, in my opinion, these are, these are all conventions for talking about something that we're experiencing all the time anyways. And, and it gets, I think, overly confusing when people, um, throw too many words on it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I feel, I understand that the, desire or the tendency to do it. But for me, just the, in the same way that I'm more interested in the context of mind and the content of mind, I'm, I'm really, I think, I don't know. I feel like as you start to explore these things, it, it opens up a, a different way of being and a different way of seeing the world. And it allows us to be able to relax in circumstances that were that we previously weren't able to. One that changes our entire experience. It allows for more freedom, more light, more openness, more love, more joy. And then from that, it's much easier to act and grow and face challenges and overcome all the crap that we inherently seem to generate. <laughs> yeah. So there's gotta be a point that, I mean, it's like, so 
tempting to um, kind of vanish into that as well. I mean, there's like, at least I found it's like, I spent so much time just like pursuing kind of like non-dual states and things like that and checking out of, um, checking out of reality as much as possible and not wanting to participate in it and not wanting to get tied up in it and all the delusions and games that people play. And, and I think probably a lot of serious occult people go through this where it's not just that they're trying to pursue a skill. They're trying to abstract themselves from, um, the, the social prison, you know, the, 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 the web of, uh, delusions that people, you know, the, just, the, just the sleeping games that people play all day long. But eventually, I mean, you can't really stay there. You've got to come back and do something, which is, you know, it's like yeah. Crowley talks about this at times. It's like, you got, you still got to do something. And it's like, well, what do you do? It's like, you get to a point where it's like, well, everything's equally empty and meaningless and you could theoretically do everything or anything, but what, you know, what, do you, when you're confronted by infinity and infinite choices, what do you do? I mean, all I can do is speak for myself, but once one encounters those states, then I think one has a sense, a definite sense that really the only thing to be done is, you know, what we would call virtuous acts or, you know, something along those lines, because once you kind of see it and understand it, then there's not the impulse to continue the, the behavior, the stories, the buying into the fake identities and sort of, I don't know, I, at least to me, this is what I've been taught and I, I don't think I can express it so eloquently, but this idea that we we're, we can't just go from our, the way that we are, which is often feeling alienated, separative entities who act as you know as a like trying to make ourselves happy but we only create suffering we can't go from that to enlightenment it just doesn't really work at all you can't like stably be enlightened and and just rest in that state you have to actually purify and do virtuous acts replace the bad habits with good habits to go beyond habit if that's even possible so when you say virtuous acts, are you talking about like charitable acts in the world or inculcating different habits within yourself? Well, in this particular case, this is a specific teaching. So the virtuous acts here would be, you know, spiritual practice specifically, in this case, deity yoga. But, you know, different people have different ideas about what constitutes virtuous acts. And I would say that you know, any, uh, you know, source of authority in, you know, spiritual traditions can certainly inform you what virtue is and what virtuous acts would consist of. I, I think that's pretty safe to say. Do you think that the getting to this kind of state of freedom and then immediately having the thought that you want to share it or you want to help other people could also be a trap back into 
the the matrix, if you will. You know, it's like, is that too possibly an illusion? Well, I mean, there's a number of like axioms that are even underlying your question that like aren't necessarily true. So once you're in, if you're in a state of gnosis or enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, even if it's not stable, I mean, you're gone and there are no other people. So, you know, I don't really know how to answer that question in a sense. Because if, well, if, I'm, if I'm me, then yes, there are other people, but I can't really help them in any in, in the same way, obviously. But if I'm gone and I'm in that state, even temporarily, you know, there's no other people, there's no God, there's no anything except perception, really. And even that seems like, well, who's perceiving what? Because it's really unclear even though the perception's totally clear. So, yeah, it, it becomes a state of total mystery. And so I don't really know at that point how you help anyone other than by being that. Because I know that the ones who can be that all the time do benefit people constantly. So Just by existing. Yeah, I mean, I just... I can take that on faith now because I've seen it over years on a daily basis and I, I don't have any doubt about it. What, what's an example of that? Like my teacher, Tractung Rinpoche, is fully enlightened and he has a capability of benefiting anyone he encounters in a multitude of ways, which I, I couldn't even begin to name. And... Uh, and oftentimes it it's, requires nothing more than like being in being in his presence. So it's it's this extraordinary to me. Do you think that it's possible that people of a certain you know level of stabilized enlightenment benefit the entire world even without necessarily interacting with people just by oh absolutely med- meditating I mean, there's a, there's a, a mountain. whole sort of tradition within i think kabbalism about this this idea that there's like a candle of the age or a certain certain beings who exist you know whether they know it or not who sort of uphold all of existence with their with their beingness with their with their mind the way they conduct themselves and what they realize as truth I was, I went to Target the other day uh, with a friend, and we were we were talking about Babylon and compassion and the nature of, um, you know, the symbol or the goddess Babylon and and compassion as accepting everything, no matter what. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, I mean, this is hopefully a redundant uh, rhetorical question, but can can you imagine a world? Well, let me preface this because I, I love that you're like calling me on underlying axioms. I love that. I love that. Nobody does that to please, please. It's like, <laughs> please. I'm like, I've been starving for that. Um, the, uh, so I have kind of have had the sense at times that if you think about like people who are, let's just say people who are enlightened sages 
wherever they may be. Maybe they're up on a mountain or somewhere, you know, and this could be, this really is independent of tradition. You know, I've talked to some people from Serbia who say they have their own elders who are up in the mountains constantly doing prayer. There's Orthodox monks constantly doing prayer in, in Greece. There's Tibetans, there's Hindus, you know, in the Himalayas, there's, there's, uh, um, and all kinds of stuff we probably don't even know about. And, um, I feel that it's almost like that that causes a, a, an underlying frequency to exist in consciousness as experienced by everyone. Like that they're stabilizing an underlying frequency of everyone's lived experience. Does that make, does that resonate with you at all? Oh yeah, definitely. And I, and I also think that, and I don't know exactly how this works, but because they've done it, it makes it possible for us to do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And even if we're not directly aware of it. And I, I think that, so I was thinking about, you know, it's the, perhaps the nature of enlightened, enlightened consciousness to see, to under, you know, to capital U understand and, and accept everything as is and have compassion about it. And then, so then I had the thought, it's like, and, and this is the hopefully rhetorical question. Can you imagine a world in which that didn't exist? And, and what I mean by that is that there are things that are outside of the equation which are incapable, like outside the closed system, which are incapable of compassion. And by that, I don't mean things that, can, you know, things that everything has to be condoned. I mean, just like that there are things outside of the freak, the, the frequency of, of, of unconditional compassion for all of humanity. It's like, in, in my perspective, it's like the entire system would collapse. Yeah, I mean, I like don't even system know would break. how that would work. Because the way I see it now that it does work is that the closed loop is sort of the human realm without that tendency. And then we that exists inside the divine sphere, which is permeated by that tendency towards tenderheartedness when, once it encounters any sort of suffering or pain or alienation. So yeah, I, I cannot imagine that either because yeah, the, the physics of it would be just, right. just wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think it's, it's, well, from my perspective, it's like, how would that even work? But that, I mean, that just goes to, sh that went to show for me, at least it's like how much we take these things for granted that we, most people don't even perceive directly or are even aware of it's well, kind of like i mean you it's I, I would argue you can't perceive it directly because it's prior to consciousness altogether but it's in implied in everything we do it's it, kind of like the background the background static of absolutely of the radio yeah absolutely it's a hundred percent and there's teachings on this exact subject i mean if you long chempa's nine spheres teaching is exactly on this what is it that um, Longchenpa is a Tibetan Buddhist sage, and he had posited this discovery in deep meditation that he taught, um, basically, that the basis of all reality is divine, but that the divine has these nine dynamics, and these dynamics are the way, sort of the the way that it expresses appearance. 
And these include things like openness or emptiness, um, tenderheartedness, um, this tendency towards divulgence or emergence, a sort of a primordial purity, um, radiance, wisdom, and and the and these have different various ways of interacting with each other to create further sort of dynamic thrusts of other more dynamic ways of being and appearing. And so and it's sort of like, you know, how do we go from emptiness to appearance? And this is sort of the roadmap of that and vice versa. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, at this point in my life, I pretty much, like most people, it's like it's it's hard for me to, um, di like divert from the Buddhist perspective on things of emptiness and, and impermanence. I just think they got it right. You know, it's like their, their metaphysics are more coherent than a lot of other things. Yeah, I mean, I was only convinced because meeting the master and seeing how he moves through the world and it was like oh so that's how the world really is it must be because when i watch there's like no effort and everything's happening and i'm like astounded because it doesn't it almost it doesn't make sense according to human logic at all and yet it's working perfectly what's in it like maybe if you can tell a story of demonstrating what what that looks like um i mean he always tells a story about how he was visiting india and he met uh someone who was running an orphanage and he wanted to help them and they needed all kinds of assistance and so he called uh one of his students and was basically like you know we need we need a million dollars like as soon as possible to fund this orphanage in perpetuity and so she was like you know get right on it and then and then he said he came back from India and then like the next Sunday, someone walked up to him and handed him a check for a million dollars. <laughs> and there was no like, Oh, you know, trying to fundraise or we need this money or there was no publicity or anything of that sort. It was all magic essentially. Yeah, no, I, there, there's so many, um, I think in, yeah, any, like I'm sure and lots of people listening have lots of, times they can think of like this like that's great like i went to um go see the uh, dalai lama at radio center center music hall in new york in like 2007 i think and it was sold out and there was no chance of getting in and the tickets were like 500 dollars anyways or something like that people were or, or excuse me no there were people on the street offering to sell tickets to see him. And it was just him talking, you know, for like $800 or something like that. And it's like, there's no way that I was going to, you know, I didn't have that money. So, um, but I just, I, I stood outside and I, I think I like held up. I just like wrote a sign saying like, you know, looking for tickets. And as soon as I swear, as soon as I wrote the sign, the door, the inner doors open and this guy just walks out 
in a beeline, like directly towards me and hands me two tickets. And I was like, what, what the hell? <laughs> like he didn't stop. He didn't look at anyone else. There were lots of people with signs saying they would buy tickets for $800. And he just walked And I was just like, okay, well, you're not going to say no to that, right? It's like, well, you know, I want to go get a hot dog instead. No. And, and it was an amazing um, talk. I mean, that was just like um, a beautiful experience. So, but this is an interesting technical thing to talk about too, because when you look at a lot of the Western magic tradition or just results magic in general, I mean, like at base, you're, you're attempting to coerce something like that to happen. Right. It's like you have a specific result that you want and you're undertaking a ritual or something or some act to induce that to happen. And um, then you get into all the dynamics of lust of result or, you know, spares does not matter, need not be that type of thing. And you're basically trying to trick your mind into getting out of the way. Whereas, well, that, uh, but that's it, the crucial part. Because the people doing this, that I'm the story, I'm, they don't have to. They don't have to trick their mind because they've already done the work to purify their minds so much that just boom, they're they they don't have a separative identity in that way where they have to then go into some way of being that's not authentic to who they are at that point. Yeah, I think that's ex exactly that's exactly it. And, but there does seem to be a point and, and this was my experience, honestly, of like, you know, uh, contacting the Eastern traditions after spending so much time in, you know, chaos magic and hermeticism and things like that. And my experience watching other people contact those and like meeting Hindu gurus and just like wigging out being like, it's like he's in gnosis all the time, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, it's just like the, the, the question of scale between let's just say, kind of more sorceric or some of the Western traditions and in like turbo enlightenment traditions like Tibetan Buddhism or Vedanta, things like that is, you know, incomprehensibly vast. And, but it does seem to be that thing where people who are in that state, they don't have to like quote, do magic to get something. It's like, they're just there and the world kind of revolves around them. That seems to be my experience. Yeah. And if there is some need to, do something to obtain or change a circumstance. It's never about them. It's always to benefit somebody else. That's interesting. I mean, I think that's why it works. You know, we're talking about virtuous acts. It's they're never doing anything to benefit them ever. They'll do mm -hmm. things to benefit other beings, to benefit Dharma, but that's it. They never take any money for themselves. They. You know, it's always just pure as can be, as far as I can that's, tell. That's beautiful. I mean, that's a beautiful teaching. I, I find that that teaching really applies on all levels. Like you can see that as a spectrum. I mean, even you even get that in a in a lower sense. Like even in, in business, you know, it's like mm -hmm. you're constantly, you know, I see it at least as like constantly trying to serve people and doing way more for them than I'm ever asking. And that's what makes it work. And, and when, and that was a really important, that was, I think a crucial insight in my own maturation where when I was first involved in this stuff, it was all about me, even if I didn't think it was, mm -hmm. or it was like, you know, I'm, 
get having these experiences. I'm getting to this level. I am refining this. I'm learning this. I'm advancing. I'm becoming. And that, that just breaks after a certain point. So you can't maintain that. And, um, that is, um, perhaps a crossing anabis experience where you realize it really doesn't matter. And it's like that and $2 will get you on the bus. And that can be quite depressing. And, but when I, you know, I was burned out on even magic at all. Like I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to like, you know, I'd started, like I got, I, I started doing this when I was 20 years old, you know, in terms of like doing this publicly. But I got to a point later after, you know, my late twenties where I was just like, this was all a mistake. This was some youthful nonsense. It's time to grow up. And of course that didn't work either. <laughs> so it's like, you can't just go back into the normal world, not really, and try to become a quote unquote normal person again. It's like, this is not going to happen. And you're just fighting yourself. And so, but for me, the crucial realization was, um, I just stopped thinking about myself at all. It's like, it's like, no, like all, you learned all of this stuff to benefit other people. And so I only focus on my students. I only focus on other people. I'm not yeah, saying I'm not. I don't do stuff for myself because I am self, I have self-interest as well, but I mean, uh, I'm not the Dalai Lama, but, and I never claim to be, you know, it's like, and I think I, I, one of the things I, I really love about exposing people to the Eastern traditions, like I just did this meditation course and, and, um, telling them about people like Milarepa or Ramana Maharshi or, um, Shavrudra Yogi or some of these people who are just, um, you know, at such a level um, just getting them understanding the question of scale. And it's like, I always tell people like, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not even a great Yogi. Like I don't claim to be special. I'm good at communicating and I'm good at, I'm good at passing ideas on, but beyond that, I'm just pointing you to, you know, people who have are like people that you're taught, like the people you're talking about this Rinpoche, you know, I think that's what it's about. Yeah. I mean, we can do practice and we can work to overcome our obscurations and but i think it does help immeasurably to have someone like that in front of you because a teacher of that caliber they're not teaching information they're demonstrating a way of being in every moment that you're in front of them or around them. And it's a vastly different thing. There is it. I mean, sure, there is some information that goes back and forth. And but that's not really what's happening. What's really happening is you're being exposed to an entirely different and truly radical way of being that is like, this is what gnosis is. You have to watch, you have to understand because it doesn't act, think, say, or do anything you'd expect and you can never predict. And I think seeing that and understanding what that means is like, it's so much different than traditions in the West where we have this idea of gnosis and growth and sort of fulfilling our potential, but we don't have anyone in front of us who's done it, who can say, this is the result and this is why you need to do it. You need to do the work because the work is so great that like even having someone 
show you the result it's still a struggle to do all the work that's involved so i cannot even imagine when you don't have the example and and i guess that's why you know alchemy or freemasonry or tarot or ceremonial magic don't have any you know continuing tradition of gnosis being passed from master to disciple yeah it's a broken tradition and it's a beautiful tradition and a tradition i think we're all working to put back together but let me i mean i have a lot of things to say about what you just said but but let me ask this in all your 13 14 years of podcasting and interacting with people have you ever met anyone that at least comes close is is or at least comes close to an example of like a worked example in the western tradition you know a, a western equivalent of the type of people we're talking about never wow never once and never even okay. a hint of it <laughs> ever okay I wish there had, I wish there had, and I longed for it and never been able to find it. I'd Maybe found they're... people who made claims. Sure. But, you know, words are just words. Yeah, I have a, the same friend I was talking about that I went to Target with. Um, she, she has a friend who's a ketamine addict. And she was like texting her at two in the morning saying, I have finally achieved Sahaja Samadhi and included the eight, concluded the eight limbs of yoga. Uh, or the eightfold, she said eightfold path. They were not, you know, some two different traditions. Um, but she's saying, but I am, you know, I have decided to undertake the path again for the benefit of everyone else. You know, it's like, it's so be thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> Maybe some good will come out of it then. Hopefully. <laughs> um, it's like, okay, okay. Um, yeah. Anyways, um, that that's that's rather disheartening to hear that from you. I'm not here to sell you any BS. Um, and, and believe me, I, like I said, I, I wished I had been able to find it. I would have loved to have been able to find it. And I'm not saying there aren't teachers or adepts that, you know, have some insights, have maybe some glimpses or tongue tip tastes of it. Sure. But so did Plotinus. Like if we look at history, we see Plotinus, one of the greatest sages of the Western tradition, and they say he had what I would refer to as like a tongue-tip taste four to six times in his life. That's it. So it's it's rare. It, it's incredibly rare, but. It's eminently possible at the same time. So, so let me ask you the follow-on question, which is looking, you mentioned Plotinus. So looking back through history, and this includes, you know, historical figures of the Western tradition um, or that type of thing, you know, famous people, but also just any Western individual throughout Western history, you know, you, philosophers, you mentioned Plotinus or, or, or <laughs> maybe, maybe, um, um, uh, Christian uh, uh, contemplatives like Saint Teresa of or oh yeah uh, Saint Ignatius or something like that. What what about then? If you take like a kind of like a broad view of history, do you yeah, consider I mean, anyone in if there? If you take a broader view, you can find this phenomena in Western religion. 
you know, figures like St. Dionysus, Iamblichus, uh, Meister Eckhart, you mentioned St. Teresa of Avila, uh, St. Hildegard of Bingen. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of others. Uh, it's certainly in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's many. St. Simeon, the new theologian. I mean, and in, in Judaism, you have the Baal Shem Tov, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, uh, and, and many others. Uh, in the Sufi tradition in Islam, you have many realized masters. So there's definitely been enlightened beings, enlightened teachers in the West. It's just that once you get to the more esoteric aspects that are not directly connected with religion, that that chain seems to have broken at some point mm -hmm. along the way. I really don't know where that was, but it seems possibly prior to the Renaissance. There's some evidence that there was um, a continuation of the Greek mysteries, but by the time you get to, you know, Ficino and Pico, like I'm not convinced that they still had it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I don't really know much about anything that happened before them, but the, you know, other than passing knowledge of Gnosticism and things like that. But, you know, when I was researching the John Dee book, you know, it's like clear that like everything we think of as the occult now comes from Ficino and, and the Italian city states. And, but they were doing the same thing that we're doing, which is cobbling together stuff from books. That's right. And, and, you know, from, you know, it's like the, the three books of occult philosophy, there you go. I mean, that's basically the, you know, the, the beta version of the golden dawn right there. Mm -hmm. uh, and everything now is the gold. Everything is the golden dawn, even if it thinks it's not in the Western tradition, in my experience. Um, maybe not everything, but I mean, it's like, it's the, if it's like the template. And if, if you're in Western magic, if it's not something that's related to the golden dawn tradition, it's likely in reaction to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, Oh, well, we're just going to do the grimoires. We're just going to get away from the golden dawn, that type of thing. But so you've, you've got, you know, Ficino, um, Agrippa, Mathers, Crowley. Um, but they were all, yeah, I think, you know, combining role-playing game uh, source books, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you have to take into account, like, the perspective that they were bringing to it. And I this Pico really elucidated this more, this idea that, you know, he, we're not, we're not, this is nothing new. We are, we're not resurrecting something that's dead, we are simply recognizing a tradition that has always been here, has never left, and we're trying to reacquaint ourselves with it. Yeah. So something interesting I've been thinking about recently in regard to that is um, I think there's been, and I can't name any, I haven't delved too far into this, so I can't name any source, um, you know, books to read, but I think there's been somewhat of a reassessment of the quote unquote dark ages recently, where it's like, were oh, yeah. they really, you know, was it really what we think it was? And so the kind of the question of like, was, was there actually a break 
in the tradition. And so an example, particularly in regards to, to Pico and all of that, obviously the reason that they, um, the reason that this big, that the Renaissance happened was because of all this material that was brought from the Orthodox world after Constantinople was destroyed. But the Orthodox world never, you know, they, they were not, they did not break, you know, it was a continuous, you know, like they never lost the information from Plato and Aristotle. No. Um, you know, so and that's why you can find it, the continuing thread in the Philokalia in the desert fathers, but that's not part of the Western esoteric tradition. Really? I mean, if we, if I, I mean, it, technically you could say it is Western esoteric tradition, but I mean, in terms of like what we're familiar with, what's popular, like the Jesus prayer is not a popular spiritual practice for occultists. Although it's I would argue one. it's far more effective than probably yeah, anything else one. they're doing. Yeah. It's amazing, like just coming from this mindset, you, you go through like reading all the Western stuff and it's like, you know, the, the, one of the great appeals for Western esoteric material is like, it's a puzzle. It's a mystery. You're putting something together. You feel that you're special because you're putting together something that people haven't put together. But like, even when I was living in Los Angeles, Los Angeles is a phenomenal city because every spiritual tradition in the world has some type of temple there. Mm-hmm. And so like I was, this is a little on the nose, but I would always say like, you know, in LA there's the, the city of angels and the city of demons and the city of demons is like all Hollywood and all that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, Yogananda called it the, the Benares of America, the most spiritual city. Is it still that way? Probably not. I had to leave, but anyways, well, like going to Orthodox churches and you're just surrounded by this living tradition. Where there's like, like I went to a Syrian Orthodox church and they've got murals of six winged angels full, filled with, with wings, with eyes. And there's like no white people in there and n- nobody speaks English that well. And it's just like, here it is. It's right in front of you, you know? And, and I do, you know, forgive me, but I, like, I do think there's a certain element of Western chauvinism and racism where people are unwilling and there has been historically where people are unwilling to look at maybe even Eastern Orthodox traditions, let alone India or Asia, and certainly would not be willing to admit that, you know, maybe other people know more than us in, in certain realms, which is obviously true. Um, and it's just like there's a certain, and even Crowley who did so much to bring in, you know, I think he, he, one of his great legacies is bringing in so much Eastern material into the Western tradition by way of, um, Alan Bennett. But, you know, even he is kind of over there, you know, taking on the teachings, but not thinking much of the people, you know, with kind of a colonial mindset. What well, my, I think reaction to what you're saying is, um, the example I would bring up is Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff is probably the most accessible Western teacher who actually had wisdom and was able to transmit that to his students and had actual methods that would help people transform. And for the most part, he's completely ignored at this point. Like, unless you're in a Gurdjieff group, nobody's talking about Gurdjieff. What's what's up with that? I mean, he he was so ubiquitous he's in colin wilson's 
occult book, you know, like, uh, well, I, my opinion is it, it comes down to the fact that Gurdjieff does not entertain our desire to feel special or to, you know, be someone who can do the magic or, you know, dress up and self-aggrandize in any way. Like his methods do the exact opposite. They point out how much of a robot you are and how you can't maintain attention for more than 10 seconds at a time, if that. And that that every moment is essentially work, a struggle, a conscious suffering. And so it's not really appealing to modern man or really anybody who doesn't, who hasn't already been convinced that the ways that they are trying are just not going anywhere. Once you once you see that what you're doing isn't going anywhere, then you become more interested in Gurdjieff's methods. Have you do you have a practical experience with that stuff? Oh, I mean, my teacher talks a lot about Gurdjieff and his teachings because it was the fourth way that was what Gurdjieff called his system, and the fourth way is the combination of these three other ways, the sort of the way of the monk, the way of the yogi, the way of the Johnny. And this is the same as Vajrayana. Vajrayana combines all different methods of practice into a single path. So it's analogous in many ways. Yeah. I've, I've never fully taken on Gurdjieff and uh, I know people who have some exposure at least um, but that's always been my, my sense of it. And it's the same with the Eastern traditions, you know, it's like they cut against the grain of what people want to do. I sometimes even think it's like, you know how like, what, this, this is a little ridiculous, but you know how water, you know, goes down the drain different ways in different hemispheres. Mm. It's kind of like that with like Western and Eastern culture to very broadly stereotype. It's kind of like, you're either like, trying to build up and express your ego and go outwards or you're going inwards, you know? Yeah. I think the, the, what I would say also though, is that just like in the West, the East, these Eastern esoteric traditions have all the same problems that we do. Um, there's all the same, like, you know, crazy ego and people, yeah. you know, blowing up into like, Oh yeah, and having like line, the lineage wars in some of those are so utterly ridiculous. Yeah, I mean forced conversion or death. I mean torture, all this kind what, of thing. Which one? Are you, which ones are you talking about there? Oh, in Tibet. I mean, okay. You know, they would. There was certain sects of Tibetan lamas would go into a different sect's temple and and, ba and monastery and basically force the monks to convert or they'd kill them. Well, I'd, I'd never heard about that. So, you know, it's a feudal society and, or it was. And so there's no reason to put other traditions up on a pedestal other than they have the ability to convey wisdom. But other than that, like it, you know, I think cultural trappings and the idea that it's somehow inherently superior because it's foreign or different hmm. and, or it's not tainted somehow by human foibles and ways of being. Sure. Is just That's wrong. a good point. 
Yeah, and and, and I, yeah, and yeah, definitely thinking about some of the politics I've been around in those groups, but um, also, you know, in a, in a lot of senses, like you bring up Tibet and and feudalism, a lot of times, like the most interesting people are the ones who are in revolt against those traditions, like oh, Drukpa yeah. Kunli, right? <laughs> That's a good you know, example. Right? Yeah. 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 It was just like, fuck all of you. I love Drukpa Kunli because he's like, um, you know, he gets enlightened and then basically spends the rest of his life going around drawing dicks on things. Well, my Do understanding you know is that the people were the ones drawing the dicks. He was the one doing the inspiration oh, for the drawings. So he didn't even have to do the work himself. He just well, got people to do this. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think, you know, an authentic enlightened being who's who's doing that is they're not they're not doing it for pleasure. They're or, doing or it to he? benefit beings. So <laughs> No, it's 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 uh but he he founded Bhutan, right? And that's like the national symbol of Bhutan. Yeah, which is hilarious to me. Do you know? Do you, do you have you? Um, do you know about John McAfee? Have you looked at him a lot? Yeah. You, do you know he used to be a city yoga teacher? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. They don't talk about this in between doing McAfee antivirus and becoming this, you know, crazed shotgun renegade. Yeah, yeah. He he apparently spent he founded like a city yoga uh, center in 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 Northern California in the Bay Area somewhere and just like basically spent 10 years like as a yoga as a meditation teacher. And he wrote he wrote a bunch of books. The only way I know, the only reason I know this is because I was in a used bookstore and I found a book that he he wrote at the time called Beyond the Cities. Hmm. where he goes in and explains what each of the cities really is from enlightened consciousness. And it all makes perfect sense and totally checks out. And I was like, yes, it's that John McAfee. So like, this is the part that gets left out of the story, but he goes from that to just being this like full on insane, like cracked out, uh, like lunatic. And, and then I was thinking about that. It's like, you know what? This actually checks out. This is like, consistent with a lot of the historical figures like Padmasambhava or Drukpa Kunli or, or uh, some of these more uh, colorful uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, it might. It might. I mean, my initial thought would be more that that he wasn't stable in it and that as a result of not being stable, you just kind of go nuts. Hmm, but okay. you're right. It could be that he was stable in it and and was nuts from our perspective. I don't know. I don't know. I never met him, and I, it, I, who am I to judge? I guess it's an interesting thing to think about. At least, I mean, but you know, like like Trungpa, right, or Adida. These are other people who were just like total nut jobs in person. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like from our perspective, but they were doing. They were all doing something specific with that behavior that seemed outrageous or unconventional or offensive yeah and and i've i've seen that dynamic a lot in in in, in spiritual groups and it's just like you know like the tibetans talk about like the the sky-like mind right where it's like sometimes you just have to be like broken out of this limited cage you put on yourself yeah and you know? really shock is the way that that's done and 
And to shock a modern Western person requires a, a lot more than it would have, you know, somebody in seventh century Asia. Yeah. Yeah. This, I'm going to go out on a limb that this is going to upset people, but the, um, the best person I have ever seen at this practice, I never do this by the way, because I don't, it just like, it's too, it's too much to take on and, and you don't want to mess that up with people. So I never get confrontational with people. Um, but I've seen people who do do that as a, as a teaching technique and it, like I'll, I'll, I'll question people and I'll point out where their thinking is inconsistent, but I don't go like full confront as the Scientologists say. Um, I have, I've done that stuff a lot in the past. I just, I certainly don't do that with students or in the, in the public, but, um, the best person I've ever seen at this is Tony Robbins and mm. everyone's going to be like, Oh, <laughs> but I saw, I've seen him do that type of confrontational stuff. Um, and it worked phenomenally well, phenomenally well. Um, he actually got canceled for the one, the one that I saw he got canceled for. Um, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the, the woman that was, he was doing this with, it was like profoundly altered as a person within a very short period of time. Um, so that's a little bit of a controversial statement. I don't know. Um, he's quite good at it. I mean, a lot of the time, I think, I don't know, but I suspect what is happening there is the shock is a way to kind of interrupt the, the person's way of being that they typically are because beingness has all of these particular ways of showing itself expressions, the way we, you know, our, our facial expression, our body expression, the way we're breathing, the way our eyes move, you know, all of these sorts of, of things. And even, even like our speech patterns, all of this stuff. And once you can shock a person, interrupt it, and then point out like the ways of being. And so that they're directly seen by the person themselves, then they without any judgment because they're, they're too surprised really at that moment. And then, because that's what it takes really to start the transformation. You have to be able to yeah. see it without judgment. And most of our obstacles, delusions, behaviors that need changing, like are obvious to everyone but us. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Uh, and that, that right there, like that's the rub, right? It's like, I remember reading about, I think there was some, there have been Gurdjieff groups where people have just videotaped themselves throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Like that sounds terrifying to me. I mean, I'm, I'm on camera a lot, but I mean, I just mean like just going about your normal day. Like, I, I think like if I watched a video of just what I do throughout a day, it would just be like, what the hell, you know, like, and like videos of your, your interactions with people from a third person perspective, that sounds <laughs> excruciating. Yeah, I'm sure it'd be, brutal I, I wouldn't have trouble watching that yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> um but that's maybe an interesting one to think about yeah that's the thing i mean that's another thing about the eastern traditions it's like people expect i'm sure you've come across this like western quote unquote i don't even know what western people means okay like let's just talk about modern whatever social uh, Amer homo americana social media because um are 
really fragile emotionally and their egos are fragile because we live in a culture where we're encouraged to just have unchecked, you know, satisfaction of desire as our entire life path to the point where it's like, I mean, yeah, everybody's entire attention is almost consumed by themselves, right? Their, their body, their career, their, where they live, how they live, who they are, who their, their relationships, like that's pretty much it. Yeah. And maybe you've seen this too. I mean, you know, it's like, I've seen a lot of instances, even like the one I mentioned, but like, I've seen a lot of instances where, um, you know, people like that come in contact with Eastern teachers or who, who are under undercut the ego or cut across, cut against the grain of the ego and they can't handle it. And I think that if you look at the sixties and seventies and all these like stories about like these horribly abusive gurus and things like that, you know, it's like, well, you know, it, well, you know, why, why have you taken responsibility for what you were doing there? Like, why were you there? Presumably you were there to try and learn something about yourself and, and, and it's really messed up to think about because I think like, I think you look at the world now, I mean, we're back at the brink of nuclear war and people are we in the, the, the West quote unquote, we truly do live in the Aeon of Horus. We're like these child God Kings running around, just like trampling everything in contact with everything, with our phones, you know, constantly obsessed with the idea of, and everyone's obsessed with the idea of magic in the occult, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean the literal thing, but just the idea of having more power, more technology, more flashiness, more ability to generate illusion online, uh, more fame. Like that's all sorcery, right? It's like all illusion. And so we are, I think we have, I think Crowley for in whatever way called it a hundred percent correctly. Like that's what we've become, but it's not a good thing. And no, I feel like our culture is like at this point, like anti logos, anti logic, like it, like you just said, we're on the verge of world war. And I'm pretty sure it was only a few months ago. I was hearing, you know, if it saves just one life, we've (laughs) all got to get vaxxed. And now it's to war. Yes. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, no. I mean, all you have to do is like, you know, even beyond just self-awareness. I mean, this is one of the things about modern life now that is so destructive, which is that no matter what happens, everyone forgets what happened 48 hours later. And because of the news, the, the nature of how news is distributed now, we get news without context like you used to get the newspaper and it was in context with everything else. We don't have that now. And also nobody remembers. It's like the memory hole from 1984. Nobody remembers anything that happened 48 hours ago. So you could come out yeah, with a story. You have another thing happening, which is depending on who you listen to, to find out what's happening. They're, they're two different narratives at yeah. least maybe more. Yeah. And so people can never even agree on the facts. Yeah. So good luck with that one. It's I mean, just insanity. That, that leads to serious conflict eventually. But 
Yeah, I think it will. I mean, we're, we are in the, you know, the West is Koranzonic to the core. We are in this, in, 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 in the abyss. And, but it's, yeah, it, we, we may need an exorcism. I think so. But that's the thing that people are most resistant to. You know, it's like, if you call anyone on their shit, they will go insane because we have this idea of like, oh, well, you know, the customer's always right. You know, like, yeah. I, I don't judge me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's for real. It's like in our our satanic culture, it's like the only sin is to judge. It's like, well, what is a culture in which nobody judges, where no one has any discrimination, where nobody uh, can say what is correct and what is not? You know, it's just like it's like walking around without your skin. Anyways, but yeah, I have noticed that this is like the perhaps the true ethic of ethic of Satanism. The only sin is to judge. And, um, yeah, no shame. It, yeah. It turns out shame is overrated. I mean, underrated. Shame's really. pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just relating this to the experience of like, you know, like, like Western people, like interacting with these groups and having this idea like, oh, I'm going to get all these fantastic powers or I'm going to be like so spiritual and so much better than everyone else now. And, or I'll know more, so people look up to me. Right, I'll be smarter or more knowledgeable than other people. Yeah, and that's not what they get. And then you know they get they get cut against the grain, and they can't handle it. But then you put that in context, it's like mother effer. Western people have been going around the world colonizing, destroying, oppressing, like r stripping out people's native religions you know, converting by the sword, strip mining, putting people in camps. And like, you can't even handle somebody saying that like, maybe you're not queen of the infinite universe. You know what I mean? That's true. But to be fair, the Eastern empires did the same thing. Sure. Um, but you, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, sure. It's they did like this, this weird fragility and, and sort of over aggressiveness at the same time. Yeah, I read a really interesting, this was like in some like alien conspiracy book, but it was really, it was a really interesting point. I think, do you ever, do you ever see those Val Valerian Matrix books? No, I can't say I have. They were around in the 90s. They were like these huge like photocopied books of like information on alien bases and implants and all this insane stuff. Um, very, it worth looking up, very weird. Um, but like he makes the point in there somewhere that America... Like, I'm not a big astrology person, but he was saying, like, America was founded under the sign of cancer, and that just defines who Americans are. We're, like, constantly going around. Uh, there might have been more to it than that, but it, basically he was saying that we're, we are constantly go around destroying stuff, but we're ultra-sensitive. And, like, if you, if you poke us, we're like, oh, you know, and, and we have to see ourselves as the good guys, you know. And I think, like, 9-11 was a pretty good example of that. Uh, and how all that played out, but oh yeah, I mean to me, on some level, and I, I, this is something that was said to me, and I, but I definitely agree with it. Building seven tells you everything you need to know about humanity. How how so? Well, I mean, this building that fell at five thirty or whatever in the afternoon, not hit by any plane. And the circumstances surrounding its collapse are so annoyingly bizarre and nonsensical 
according to the sort of innocent naivete, that sort of logic that, you know, but when you look into it, I think the implications are, you know, this world is not what you take it to be. Right. One of the things about 9-11 is like, I always, I, I point out to people is like, even if you don't look at the, like, like let's just like take, just as a, as a demonstration in how human perception and memory works, like, let's say we don't get conspiratorial at all. And just say like everything that happened as reported happened a hundred percent as is. Okay. Do you ever hear anyone talk about the fact that the Pentagon was hit by a plane? No. Like a plane hit the Pentagon and one fell in a field also, but that no one remembers that. It's like a plane hit the effing Pentagon. And that that's just like written out of the narrative. I mean, even to, I mean, yeah, again, like, yeah, if you take the skepticism out of it, it's, it's, it's sort of wild and awe inspiring enough. But then you think like, well, the Pentagon, that's got to be one of, if not the most heavily defended buildings on the planet. So how's that happen? Right. And then you look into that and, you know, it just, to me, it's just another example of anything that you look into deeply, you're going to be shocked because it's not what you thought it was and it's not what it's purported to be. Yeah. It just, that's how everything is. Yeah. In a way it demonstrates, it is a demonstration of magic in a way, not in necessarily the conspiratorial sense, but it just shows how much people's beings, identities, memory, and thinking is shaped purely by symbols. And it's like, the reason nobody thinks about the Pentagon is because that image of the Twin Towers being hit is so totemic and is etched into everybody's mind. And it just has become the thing. And nobody could tell you maybe, you know, the names of the people who did it, what happened afterwards, like any, anything. It's just this, it's a symbol. And I think that's a symbol that will be certainly with America as long as it exists or the crucifixion, you know, it's like, it's a symbol. Uh, and this, this demonstrates the nature of that. Um, but people forget and, and, you know, it's like they forgot the Pentagon was hit or I always make the point, you know, like you don't even need to get conspiratorial about 9-11 and actually get like really irritated with 9-11 truthers. Not because I think they're necessarily wrong, but it's just like, I just remember back in the 2000s, it was just like, look, we have on record that they lied about weapons of mass destruction. That's of the public record. There, You have everything you need to make a case that this was in, that there was malintent. And nobody even talks about that. And like you said, now it's like, oh, well, you know, if it saves even one life or we've got to go to war. And it's like the government is on record lying to you willfully to destroy an entire group of people that had nothing to do with. And it's not and it's not a single occurrence. It It's repeated over and over and over again. But it, it doesn't really matter when you have the situation that we live in, which, you know, the government, the media, big business, everyone's on board. So if you don't get with the program, you know, you're an outcast. You're a tinfoil hat wearing 
person. Yeah, let's talk about that because so. I'm I'm curious about your. Um, let's talk about that at a meta level because the politics around that have changed so radically in the last five years. Let's say where I'm sure you know conspiracies used to be interesting and cool, and now and of course the occult is tied up in conspiracy, and now we we're in an interesting moment where talking about any conspiracy theory will get you earmarked immediately by people on the left as a Trump supporting QAnon nut job. And conversely, talking about any occult stuff will get you earmarked by anyone on the right as some Pizzagate, you know, whatever, like underground mm -hmm. satanic panic <clears throat> thing. And it's just like, that's quite, um, that's, I mean, it's not new, but it's n new in recent history where it's like all of a sudden the con, like all this stuff was like super cool in the nineties. It was like X-Files, all that. Like now it's not. Now this, it's very different. Like the meta politics around, pers let's just say per pursuing hidden knowledge. And I'm wondering what your thoughts yeah, are on that, I, or if you've seen that change just over the course of doing the podcast. Oh yeah. I mean, I've seen that progression where conspiracy in sort of research was interesting. It was always sort of like a rabbit hole, but I think people entertained the possibility that there were things going on that weren't seen. There were hidden actors. There were alternative explanations that history wasn't really as it's presented to us. But I, I feel like now we're in a time when the powers that be, for lack of a better term, are so trying to lock down specific narratives so hard that anyone who goes outside the boundaries that they prescribe is immediately suspect and then destroyed. Their reputation's destroyed, or they may be canceled. They may not be able to bank or do any business. Yeah. Um, and to me, this says those in power are trying to prevent people from learning what is really going on or what has gone on or why we are where we are. Um, so it's problematic because both these sorts of activities have a general thrust in the idea of being more free than we currently are. And when that is noticeably hindered, you have to ask yourself why? Because essentially it's, it's really harmless activity, isn't it? Or is it? I would say so, but now the argument is like, well, you know, there were people who had this Pizzagate conspiracy theory and then they went and shot up a pizza shop or, you know, the, you know, Alex Jones just got sued for a billion dollars or, you know, people, I think people argue, would argue, you know, I'm a free speech absolutist personally, I'm Gen X, I don't, you know, that's just where I'm coming from. But, but, um, you know, I think people argue it's like, well, somehow like all this conspiracy theory is responsible for Trump becoming elected. And, and it's like this conspiratorial way of thinking and, and, uh, and misinformation and Russian misinformation and fake news and all of this stuff. 
So I, See, I, people, I would argue that it's the actual conspiracies that brought us these things, not the conspiracy <laughs> theorists. That's a very good point. <laughs> but then, then they'll call me the theorist. So right, you know, which now is a slur. It's like all you have to do to write course. somebody off is say that. That's what I mean. So that I'm I'm easily discredited. But you mentioned that, that you know, it's like people are, are corralled into this narrative, but it's like the narrative changes every month, every two months. We saw that during and COVID. And yet they, they allow themselves to be corralled into it every single time, yeah. seemingly. It was like, you yeah. know, uh, like I remember at the beginning of the of COVID, it's like, oh, if you think there's going to be vaccine passports, you're a conspiracy theorist. And then it was like, oh, if you don't want vaccine passports, then you just want people to die. And then it was, this is a conspiracy of, of you know, it's, it's all your fault. Yeah. You know, it's like, so... But that changes. I feel constantly. like another aspect of this that deserves a little recognition is sort of the way that terms are changed, the definitions are changed. So it creates conflict, it creates division. You know, for instance, like when I was growing up, we had a, at least from what I recall, a sort of fairly standard understanding of what fascism was. And to me, and you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it was sort of this combination of state and corporate power consolidated, maybe like public-private partnership type of thing. But nowadays, when you ask certain people what fascism is, the answer is a, a leadership style that's centered around sort of leading from the emotion, leading from will, and that's what fascism is. So when that's the case, you know, either side is like, well, they're the fascists, not me. And because the these sort of definitions are seemingly malleable, then they're both correct. Yeah. Do you remember like 10, 15 years ago, people had those bumper stickers that just said mean people suck? Yeah. I think that's kind of like the, the extent of people's political thinking, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, or, I mean, or sometimes you see like those coexist yeah, stickers yeah. and then, and then sometimes the people are nice, but other times you're like, you don't want to coexist with anyone who's different than you or anyone who has different beliefs than you do. Well, I think that seeing this stuff from the perspective of a meditator or a magical thinker, it's like, you, you, maybe you've had the same experience. It's just like, come to, you, you, you realize it's like human beings have not changed at all. We live in a tribal society, a superstitious tribal society. You could go down the list of all like the quote unquote tribal quote unquote savage rituals in, in the golden, the golden bow, like the James Frazier book. And you could find out an, an analogs for them for every single one of them in, in our society, whether it's the scapegoat ritual of building someone up and tearing them down, canceling them, you know, it's like every single one. And um, people are inherently irrational, emotional, um, uh, reactive, um, body-centered, and, um, and tribal. And so like all those symbols, they're, ju they're just like tribal allegiance symbols. You know, they don't, there's no ideology behind them. They're not thought out. You know, no, it's like a, a, a MAGA 100%. hat. Yeah. Is, is just a tribal identifier. And um, yeah. that's, that's the true like terror of the situation as Gurdjieff put it. You realize like, it's like, we're, we're primates. 
and and that's really and primates are really violent and irrational well, actually, i'd go even further i mean and i think gurdjieff would go even further it's it's like that would be a might be a step up like we're actually like robots and okay. someone else has programmed us horribly wrong and we can't undo our own wrong programming on our own because we don't know the right programming and most people don't so it's like a badly calibrated machine yeah and we don't actually even have control over it <laughs> i agree i think it's like we're we're we are you know we don't have our own operating manuals we never got the manual and and we we think we think that we're thinking our own thoughts <laughs> but they're not even our own thoughts we've we've taken on board ideologies ways of thinking opinions from from elsewhere and just assume that they're ours and just go right along for the ride yeah and then you throw, then you realize we have nuclear weapons too yeah yeah it's um it's a mystery to me how our, our species has lasted this long um yeah i think well, i think the only reason is divine grace probably yeah um yeah, that's sometimes I think about that in context of what we were talking about, about that kind of like um, frequency of compassion, you know, but uh, that's, that's got to be the only explanation. And it's like, you yeah, know, it's not because of human no. activity. <laughs> it's in, 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 in spite of, and, yeah. and uh, you know, you want to talk about magic. It's like, um, like, think about, like, I always think about this. It's like, you know, people always want magic but they always want it to be Harry Potter. They don't mm -hmm. want to think, consider what's right in front of their face, which is what magic is. Like we're in this bizarre process that nobody understands. And yet it somehow works out. And, um, you know, think about like, think about how many times everything has seemed, whether in your own life or in the world, everything has seemed apocalyptic. Like it's going to fall apart. Like it's hopeless. Like there's no way out. And then you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and th things seem fine again. It's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. And it's yeah. like, I used to make the example to people like, look, you know, when we were growing up, we took it as a, for granted that there was going to be a thermonuclear war at some point that would kill us all. And, and everyone's like punk rock was reacting to that. Everyone was reacting to this uh, in the sixties. They were, the hippies were reacting to that. It's like, we're being held hostage by insane people who want to destroy the planet for ideology. Um, and then that just went away. Now it's back. Now, now I can't make that example because now it's back. But mm -hmm. you know, there was like this period of like 20 years where that, that just like wasn't the case anymore. And yeah, was, or people weren't it thinking unbelievable. about it. Yeah. It's like, well, like by any logical assessment of the world and, and real politic view of people's nature and the nature of states, we should have at least had one nuclear exchange and it never happened. Now I don't want to eat my words in a week if a nuke gets dropped right. in the Ukraine, you know, but, but uh, what is that? But, but divine grace. Yeah. I think that's, there's no other explanation I could come up with because human beings stumble and fumble and bungle our way through life. And, you know, we hurt others intentionally unintentionally yeah it, the fact that 
And but I'll, I honestly, I feel like that what we're talking about here in terms of war and mass death, that's a whole different phenomenon. And I've been taught that the way it basically works is that every so often when human beings are not engaged in enough spiritual activity or virtuous acts that the uh, calling basically takes place and and that the powers that be metaphysically require sacrifice they require human blood to, to what what, what powers that be their, are we talking about here i mean blood for I the mean, blood god whatever whatever mechanism you know runs the universe i mean this is related i think a lot to the idea that when human beings die our mind or awareness or soul if you will is sort of recycled back through the moon oh, and yeah. that that when we die without having attained enlightenment or gnosis that we are just food for the moon and so you could say in that sense the moon requires a sacrifice in order to maintain life in the human realm maybe i don't know well if you think about I how can't much say i know <laughs> this but this is what i've been taught it's interesting if you think about how much uh, the moon affects the. it's like this is the thing about people who um want to even like i said i'm not big into astrology but people who want to dismiss astrology it's like you know look at the effect that the moon has on the effing ocean and we're 70 percent water or whatever it is and it doesn't have an effect on us just take the moon you know um but when you're talking about there's, like tides of blood so many strange strange things about the moon that just don't really make a whole lot of sense i mean the fact that it's the exact size and distance so that if it comes between us and the sun it perfectly covers the sun exactly right. <laughs> i mean that seems odd um the the fact that we only ever see one side of it that seems odd to me um how about the fact that the light from the moon is cold instead of warm that seems odd to me is that a thing yeah interesting cold light is a good name for like a like a cold wave goth band. Uh, interesting. Yeah, war. It would be like, I think it was Nietzsche or somebody like that said that, I'm going I'm to butcher this, but I think him or somebody like that said something to the effect of, you know, hum humans can bear anything as long as they have a why. You know, why there's a- yeah, I think a, that was Viktor Frankl. Okay, okay. Well, even more pertinent, right? And- yeah. um, <laughs> instead of Nietzsche it's a weird slip okay or was it something maybe I'm wrong I can, I'm sorry yeah I don't know either but but I think that's definitely true and you see this with with you definitely see this with magical and spiritual practitioners where particularly in the early stages there's got to be a narrative like there's a narrative about like we're all being enlightened like I'm there's a narrative about my personal apotheosis or something like that or there's a conspiratorial narrative where it's like i'm fighting against something or whatever and like mm -hmm. at a certain point that just all dissolves it just breaks down and becomes ludicrous but um hopefully i think so you know hopefully. you just meditate through it you know and and um but for a lot of people they don't break through that 
Right. Which is why it's important to direct people to, uh, like actual meditation practice. Um, and, but that, that's definitely true. And, but people who are not spiritual practitioners definitely never break out of it. Um, and yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I would say if you can avoid it, you should avoid it because spirituality or narratives is spiritual path. (laughs) I would say if you can avoid it, you should avoid it because probably true. It's, it's a lot of work. And once you start, you're like a snake in a tube. You can't turn around. You can't go back. The only way through is forward and, you know, hold on. Cause if you go far enough, you're going to find out nothing is what you thought it was. And there's no net and there's nothing to hold on to and there's no one coming to save you and good luck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For me also, it's like, what's the alternative? At least for me personally, it's like, no, I completely agree. There's no alternative. The alternative is what you were saying. It's being an unconscious robot on a savage planet full of killers. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, take the the blue pill and go back in the matrix. I mean, I feel the same way. There's just, this is it. Like I don't have a choice. If I had a choice, it'd be different, but I don't. So strap in. Yeah. I think all the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, and this is something I really want to emphasize, like all the stuff about meta awareness and being aware of awareness and aware of context that you were saying and being striving to be less reactive and therefore less robotic and less controlled. Um, in our current period, it, that used to be a luxury. Now it's a survival skill. And we're, we're could easily go back to a period which is like World War II. And um, I'm going to talk about this a lot because not necessarily just on this podcast, but you know, in podcasts, just because I was so deeply disturbed by it. But I just finished reading this book, Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder which is likely the most disturbing book I've ever read. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a history book about the geographical territory between Hitler and Stalin during the 30s and 40s. And it, instead of looking at it from one side or the other, for the first time says like, what if we just look at this territory, like Poland, um, Belarus, Ukraine, and see it as um, see just the human tragedy affected on it by both the Soviet and Nazi systems. And at that point, understand the true level of suffering that happened. And, um, and also understand that these systems often, those two systems that we think are separate, communism and fascism, were um, in many cases cooperating or kind of egging each other on into greater killing. And it gets to this point. I mean, 14 million people died there. People died in the, in the famine in Ukraine. Parents were eating their children. Children were eating their parents. It's like unimaginable suffering. Um, the other thing like that, you know, and this is really important for people to realize now because we're sliding back into these things. Um, the really shocking thing from that book is we never saw the Holocaust. Like Americans and the English, like, like the... the the Americans liberated Auschwitz, which was a combination concentration camp, death camp. Um, all of the death camps were behind the Iron Curtain in, in Poland, and we never saw them. And the level of 
brutal and merciless killing that took place is just is just breaks all comprehension and um and it gets to this point where it's like you have to wonder it's like kind of like the stuff you were saying it's like what really went on here like this is so far beyond the pale of any rationality or any reasoning the other scary thing is all this was all fought over the ukraine because it's the breadbasket right it's where that's they're fighting over the soil in the ukraine so you almost get it's like what did like some pagan god awaken and demand blood or something like this like i hate to make light of it like that but no but i mean that you're not necessarily wrong i mean gurdjieff said basically you know world wars are caused when you know planetary bodies or celestial bodies come too close to one another and there's a bit of friction and we experience it on earth as world war well it's irrational makes no sense it seems crazy and yet it is yeah it happens anyway and we're witnessing it right now we're watching yeah. it the the craziness the irrationality the nonsensical nature of the whole thing unfolding day by day and nobody seems to be able to stop it yeah yeah and and all those forces or are, even want to stop it right yeah i mean like you see like all this like the kanye west insanity i mean there was there was more anti-war activity when the u.s was getting ready to invade iraq the second time than there has been about this right although i think the stakes are the the existential stakes are a lot higher now and um oh, off the chart yeah I'm, I'm i wouldn't even necessarily say that i'm i'm an anti-war person at this point because it's like you at a certain point you have to say it's like you you have to say it's like well every everything has to serve a function right it's like conflict is inevitable at a certain point well i mean i'm i'm anti-suffering yeah yeah whatever that's worth i think the point that i was wanting to underline is it's like if you don't if you don't make an effort to de-robotize yourself if you don't make an effort towards awakening then you're just caught in by whatever means you know maybe it's not even in a spiritual way maybe it's like in some self-actualization way or i don't know but um if you don't do that then you're caught in the tide of history and the tide of history, you know, and I'm using that word specifically within the context of this conversation, leads to killing fields. You know, the tide of history is not going any rational place. Yeah, and I mean, you're right. And if people don't do it, they're, and I, I hate to say this, but they're, they're not living up to their true human potential. Because in my opinion, a human being's true purpose is to become fully aware of the divine and that we participate and live within that. And if they don't realize that, then their life has unfortunately been wasted. According to my opinion, I don't expect people to agree with me, but I think it's worth considering. You have to wonder if that's the case, and that seems to be the case. Why has spirituality been so historically shunned and unpopular? And I don't mean like tribal religious symbols and religion and things like that. I mean, you know, even Ken Wilber made the point. 
in the early 2000s. Like if you really look at these enlightenment traditions, the people who actually did enough work to quote unquote get get enlightened are, you can count them on, you know, it's probably under a hundred, maybe it's under 50, maybe less, you know, despite all these symbolic scaffoldings and ornate systems that have been built up around these things. It's like, it, basically the point he was making is forget about now. If you go back to these things that people thought were golden ages, nobody was doing the work then either. And you look back at, like you mentioned feudal Tibet. It's like, you know, you think about the, you know, the level of, of, uh, uh, suffering there or in Mongolia or something like this, you know? So, um, yeah, why I mean, has on this one level, been I so... Think we, just, we just have to accept that this is how the human realm is. This is how human beings are. If they could... I mean, the, the problem is you'd have to already be enlightened to understand why it's important and why all the work is necessary and be more than willing to do it. If you're not already enlightened, the only reason you would have to commit yourself in that way is a faith that's so deep and unshakable that you're willing to give up everything because truly the spirit, the authentic spiritual path, it's a path of giving up everything and getting nothing in return, literally nothing. But that's the beauty of it because, you know, once you can become nothing, you know, then it's like flipping, you know, between nothing and everything. And there's sort of a, an understanding of, of love and wisdom that's participatory and is a complete full body experience and not some intellectual idea. Yeah. It's a, uh... Well, my job is to, to sales pitch it a bit more, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I had a terrible, um, psychedelic trip in, in the mid two thousands where, um, I, I truly thought this was an, an abyssal moment where, uh, I was in a warehouse in East Brooklyn and, and I did a bunch of, um, somebody I met did a bunch of mushrooms with Siri and Rue, um, which makes it more, much more. And I had this experience that went on for six hours of basically contacting all the suffering in the world all at once. And so I was like seeing, I was like on video being uh, beheaded by Al Qaeda. I was being in the 17th century being as a body being thrown into a lime pit in Haiti. I was a mother waking up and realizing that her child had been killed by famine I was, it's like, and it just went on and on and on. And it was just like absolutely shattering. And it's just like, again and again, it's just like, there's no escape. You can't escape it. Like everything suffers, everything. And we forget that because we want to say, we want to fight each other and say, my suffering is more important than yours, or you don't suffer because you're X, Y, Z, but the nature of reality, I mean, and th this was, this was not, you know, up, up, up till then, this had been an intellectual concept, the Buddhist concept of like the nature of existence is suffering. It's like, it's not just that everything is suffering. It's that everything is constantly in excruciating agony and there is not escape and everything that appears to be an escape from it 
is just leads right back into it. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not saying this is ultimate reality. This is saying what I experienced at the time. And Mm -hmm. I saw as this trip progressed, I saw this changed my view on literally everything. I also saw like just how, what it, how horrible I had been in so many, um, um, you know, how egotistical and puffed up I had been. And this was right after I put out my first book and I was like, ah, look at me, I'm a wizard. Um, and, uh, I had this whole vision of, there was like a mountain made up of saints that everyone in the world was like crawling to like with broken bodies. You hear about this sometimes in Tibet, but they were like Catholic saints, like praying for absolution. And it's like, well, the saints are part of the system. It's like, that's their, they, they are also perpetuating it. It's like they're perpetuating it by positing salvation, which, it, which, per, you know, persists the misery. And they're there. And it was like, they are predatory in that way. And there were all kinds of other aspects to it. I think the, the castinated jellyfish thing was in there. There was uh, at, one, at one point it was just like, I think I was, it was like something was telling me it's like, well, now you're dead. So now you, it was like, now you can become an assassin. And they wanted me to be like, basically be this, this non-person entity that went around as an, it was just, it was a nutty trip. But then I got to a point where, um, I got to the outer rung of this whole, and basically I was experiencing the whole system of the world as a closed loop of suffering. And I got to the point where I saw the outer ring of it almost in, so, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about this encircling the the planet, like a, like a layer of atmosphere, <laughs> like the ice ring around yeah. Antarctica. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but it was made up of the bodhisattvas and they're all praying with compassion for this. It was just like a ring of Buddhas, which I have no doubt exists. We're all praying with compassion for this. And the, the final message was, you cannot escape suffering, but you can have compassion for it. In which case you win, you win the game, but you still suffer. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what Gurdjieff was talking about. Conscious suffering is the path. We undertake spiritual practice, which is conscious suffering and we engage it and we learn to become joyful with no cause and yeah i mean i i don't think there's there there's no there's nothing in the human realm closed loop system that could possibly do that i mean this is a realm where one thing eats another to survive so there's got to be something from outside this closed loop system that will allow us to get out of the problem situation. And you're right, we don't get out of the situation by somehow transcending our bodies or the world, but instead we transcend it by going deeper into the suffering, by becoming aware of it, by being with it. That's what compassion means, to be with suffering. So yeah, that's the way. And again, this is exactly why I said earlier, like if you can avoid the spiritual path, you should. <laughs> yeah, because that's where it leads. <laughs> it is. This is exactly where it leads. It leads into nothingness. It leads into compassion, which is being with suffering. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's like that game show where they 
they they go tell him what he won and they bring out the the prize at the end of the game show <laughs> i think about yeah, that it's a like lot. The, i don't know if you remember that movie the golden child oh yeah absolutely Murphy. yeah at the end i've of had the weird movie, experiences like with that movie companions like thanking the the buddhist monk or whatever and the guy the monk's like he's thanking me because i you know brought him onto the spiritual path and he kind of laughs like <laughs> fool <laughs> yeah it's kind of yeah yeah i've had weird experiences with that movie where i was like i was on like a bunch of ecstasy and then that came on for no reason and i thought it was people in Kathmandu <laughs> communicating with me um <laughs> this is back back in the day but uh, yeah that's a great movie that's one people should resurrect well but that's the hope though right it's like you want there to be a solution and i don't well there is there is a solution it's just it requires so much work and so much grace that it's it's damn near impossible yeah but yet it's available to us all yeah it's such a weird thing about now like the paradox of the moment that we're in because i think possibly for the first time ever in world history there's despite all the bad things going on in the world there's this combination of lots of people have leisure time which they've never had before people have their basic needs met there's refrigeration there's food available and they also have access to all of the spiritual information they could possibly ever need or want on the internet and so it is a perfect it is a perfect situation created for spiritual practice um, at least in the in the outer right it's like the, yeah. everything is set I, up i mean but i think with the caveat that information does not equal transformation but that's exactly it right it's like there's all that but you can't you can't distinguish again you can't judge you can't distinguish what's right and what's wrong and also um there are infinite distractions and delights it's like you know the ten thousand things was was optimistic I think by today's standards, it's like, yet, yet we are, our consciousnesses are infinitely Koranzonic, scattered, thrown about by electronic media, incapable of not only holding a thought, but even holding a, maintaining a coherent story of how you got here from 48 hours to the next. Even, we can't even maintain a self-awareness for more than a few seconds at a time, which is that, I mean, if you try it, you'll see it's it's crazy yeah and and for me it's like i've been so many people in my life and i've been lived in so many places and gone through so many um changes and careers and relationships and eras of my life and 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 but through all of them it's kind of like doctor who where it's like in all of them i am a magician like i am a spiritual practitioner and that's like the one coherent through line and that I have this burning need to communicate this information to people. And so in a sense, that's like a real, it's a real comfort to, to have that to fall back on. And I think that, uh, that's the, I mean, that, that is faith in a way. It's like, that's, that's the benefit of spiritual practice. You know, even when the world is chaotic and insane, it's like, well, the basic facts don't change. The Tao is not, you know, the Tao De Ching is not going to change, you know, right. <laughs> it'll show you how things change. Yeah. I mean, that, but, that's really what it's about. It's about realizing the changeless and giving up that which changes. 
which is everything, which is thingness itself. And I, I think I, I paradoxically, that's how you get to that point that you were talking about where it's like, well, now the, the storm revolves around you. It's like, now you don't, you get to that way woo place where it just kind of happens. Genesis uh, Purge had a good term for it where she called it the of course syndrome. Like whenever these miracles quote unquote or things would happen, it would just be like, Oh, of course, of course that would happen. And there was no deeper, uh, uh, there was like, I remember I was like staying with Jen in the East village and like, I got on Google maps just to see where we were. And I noticed that I realized that the, um, building she was living in was shaped like a psychic cross. <laughs> and I pointed this out that she'd never noticed that. And she's like, Oh, well, well of course it is. <laughs> like this type of thing. You know? It's like, just like a, like a housing, uh, uh, pro, you know, apartment complex or whatever. Um, yeah, I feel like when you, when you really get into this and you're practicing this stuff, the sort of weird synchronicities like that are just, yeah, you're, you're right. It's just, of course, eventually you kind of, you know, kind of take it for granted, you know, like you expect them to be there. So. Well, it's a lot easier when you understand that the spiritual path's not about you. It's about the divine. Yeah. It, it has zero to do with you. In fact, that, you know, nothing really. Yeah. I have always had that perspective and cause I'm a good Christian boy. And I think that, uh, that is, um, that's so important uh, that, you know, e even the Buddhist conception of the world, you know, of emptiness and interdependence and the, the, the changing and decaying nature of gods themselves. I mean, even that in a sense is not, it transcends theism, but it goes through theism on the way to transcending it. It's like the Ein Sof, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. No, I mean but... the Ein Sof, the no thing, that's emptiness. Yeah. And the Ein so far is the luminosity, <clears throat> and those two are not two. Yeah. And um, that is something I've thought about a lot. You, I'm curious your thoughts about this. It's like people get really hung up on religions contradicting each other or spiritual paths contradicting each other. But I really do find an experience. It's like, you really can just unify them all with the Kabbalah and say, they're looking at it from different angles. It's like, well, what about monism? Well, you know, they're in Kether. What about, what about, um, you know, uh, uh, prayer to Christ? Well, you're in Tifereth. Well, what about Buddhism with the emptiness? Well, you're in the Ein Sof, you know, and the, well, what I would say is that spiritual teachings, religious doctrines, um, holy books, these are not articulations of truth as such. These are methods that one can use to get to truth. But truth can't even be spoken in language. So these are all methods that, that people use, and <clears throat> they're different methods. And they're coherent and logical within their own system. I think the problem becomes when we try to syncretize them out of context without really understanding the method and what it does and how to put the methods together in a yeah. logical sequence that takes one from delusion to wisdom. 
because we we're not capable of doing that it takes an enlightened being to do that yeah i mean on one level like i want to do that i think it's a noble project i want just as a techie type person to make it all fit together and make sense and i do think that kabbalah does that really well but it's really easy to just get into ken wilberland where you're writing these massive books that nobody reads trying to like you know, put together spiritual systems in a way that is just becomes, you know, kind of like language, uh, generating language. But, um, yeah, I mean, on the other hand, like for instance, like I have, you know, I have all my occult books throughout my life, at least all the ones that I really like are here. And I go out and I look at my shelves where I've got all the Crowley and, and Gnostic Bible and Buddhist Vajrayana and like, you know, spare, like all this stuff, Kenneth Grant books, you know, like all that stuff. And I look at it and I'm like, literally none of this has any overlap with my life at this point, which, and my life is 100% spent with, with magic, communicating it, teaching it. And it's like, I look at it, maybe not a hundred percent overlap, but it's just like, it's like, this doesn't even necessarily resonate with me at all anymore and yet i don't have any sense whatsoever of being out of line with the magical current because it's my entire life that's interesting you say that i feel like you're we're circling back now this is because what you're expressing is really like at the heart of why magical western magical traditions like fragmented right because what you just described I completely understand, but it's the opposite of my experience because, and not with books, but like the living master is the teaching and yeah. they are directly relevant to my everyday life and every moment that. and every circumstance. Yeah, and it's I like, absolutely agree a, with that. It's a like, and, and, and I sold all my books prim mostly. I got rid of all of them because I was like, I, this, like, I don't, I can't even go back to a book when I've got a living being in front of me who's telling me how it is. It's just like, it would almost be insulting yeah. on some level. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. And and that I think is a missing piece that, that I would love the quote unquote Western magical tradition and the, the representatives of it. I want people to at least have that experience um, because... Like, you know, I was thinking just as a brief point before I make this point, like, like I was thinking when you were talking about being in the presence of a, of a master and they're demonstrating a way, it's kind of like a tuning fork. Like they're resonating at a certain frequency, exactly. you get close and you start resonating yes. at that frequency. And yes, there's usually like a yep. practice. There's like satsangs. There's other students. There's the drama with other students. There's like, you know, mm -hmm. little nitpicky things, but all of that is basically beside the point. The point is that you're coming into resonance with this being. And I've had that experience with a lot of living masters. I had that experience with Jen. I had that experience with uh, Hindu, a lot of Hindu gurus, uh, primarily from the Hindu tradition. Um, you know, I've had that experience in India. And like, I get that. You get into that, um, you know, they call it like the Buddha field, where you get into that, that, that uh, blast zone. And it does feel like an energetic blast zone of 
I would just call oh, yeah. it evolutionary energy. And you have, uh, and, uh, you evolve quicker. You see through things faster. Things click into place. Things make sense. Um, you're challenged. And the other thing is, you know, Robert Thurman points this out. The Buddha field is not just the energy. When you're in that orbit of the uh, master, situations are also generated within your life that are teaching situations. And you're moved along. Constantly. Yeah. And, and it's just like constant challenge. It's like, and you're moved along. You're pushed. It's like basically you get around a parent who kind of picks you up and shows you how to walk instead of trying to learn it from a book. Uh, and they do it by, yeah. you know, parents teach by allowing kids often to make their own mistakes, you know, by um, kind of allowing them to figure it out, but kind of catching them if they get into something like they're going to touch a hot stove. And that's what it's like. And I would like, you know, like I was, I met a guru. It was a great, great interaction with him. Shiv Rudra Bala Yogi in Australia. His teacher was Shiv Bala Yogi in, in India, who I don't know if you've come in contact with him before, but he's considered like, mm -hmm. like he's not one of these ones that's widely publicized, but he's considered like one of the greatest meditators of certainly the, if the 20th century. And this guy went into tapas and meditated for like, seven years unceasing to the point where his, and his student was the same way where his fingers, I always tell this story because he had his hands like this and his fingers, the bones fused together into his palms because he had them in meditation. You can't make that up. You know, and he wrote books about like going to other planets and experiencing intelligence in other realms and things like this. And it's like, I would like people in the West, I, like I would like people to have a sense of scale. It's like, I want people to at least see that and know that it's there and to have a sense of scale of where these things lie. And then, you know, and obviously I come from the Western tradition. I like the Western tradition, you know, it's like, I like the trappings of it, but um, we have to be honest about where things are in the grand spectrum of things. And, and, you know, and, and the other thing about that is we are in danger of losing a lot of these traditions, even with the internet, you know, cause we're in danger of losing Freemasonry within this generation. These things could go away very quickly. People take things for granted. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, lineages do die out. Um, but what you're talking about, the, for people to know that this is a real thing, to be able to encounter it, I mean, really, that's on, if I'm honest, that's why I'm speaking with you right now. Because my teacher, Traktung Rinpoche, is not going to sit down for an interview. But he'll send me to do it. And I'm happy to. Because all that he's taught me and helped me understand and change and grow. I mean, I, I, there's if it's within my power to do it, I'll, I'd be more than happy to do it. There, in, is some small effort to try to repay his kindness, which I'll never actually be able to do. I feel the same way. I mean, I, I feel the same way with um, my gurus. I mainly feel the same way with Genesis. It's like I said, I, I showed up on Genesis's doorstep. I said, I want the job. I went through the experience. She showed all this kindness to me um, over seven years and now is dead. And I said I would do the job and I will do the job. And I said that to her 
before she died as well. And it's just like, that's, you, you, but that is tradition. It's like, you have to pay it forward. And that's a snake in a tube. <laughs> yeah. And, and the beautiful thing is it feels great to be able to, to do that, to serve in that way. And it's, and it's not demeaning, it's ennobling. Yeah, I mean, what else would you rather do with your life? Become a politician? <laughs> Try to affect <laughs> change at the local that. level through community organizing? <laughs> uh, makes me nauseous <laughs> just hearing those words. Can you imagine? Um, I mean, not to judge anyone who does that and enjoys it, but that is not my path. And... And never will be. Well, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little perverse, you know, like I love the clephotic side of things. I love the agori side of things. So I, I, I do like just effed up things from time to time. Like I went and just worked in advertising. I went to live to LA. Like I'll put myself in like the most like utterly soulless situations to see the light on the other side. Uh, and I've learned a lot oh, that it can way. Definitely be worthwhile. I used to work in a liquor store. Okay. What was that like? For similar reasons. Well, it was pretty fun, actually, because almost everyone who came in was in a really good mood. And day, you know, the day and night would pass pretty quickly, and we got to drink on the job, and you know, what's That's not great. to like? <laughs> what, was the, what was the biggest takeaway uh, for your own path that you got from that experience? Oh, that's it's. I don't know how this is going to sound, and I can't really make sense of it yet. But there's something strange about beer and using it as like a a method for esoteric practice. Mm. And I don't think I could say more than that. But like I, I didn't even know that was even a possibility before I started there. Well, that's good news for me because I like it a little bit too much. So, yeah. <laughs> Good news. Well, this has been, we've gone over two, this is two hours now. This has been an awesome interview. I feel like we could just keep talking and I would definitely love. Yeah, this has been super oh, fun. Thank you no, so you're much, welcome. Jason. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Please this. come back on the show again soon. Uh, there's, I feel like we could just cover so much. Um, I'm curious what you want to leave people with. I mean, like definitely like how to find your podcast, how to find uh, more about you. Maybe if you want to talk about um maybe even if people want to get more involved with things like Tibetan Buddhism, what they would, what they would do, or, you know, just in the sense that you, you talk about kind of being communicating a message in that way here. Yeah. So you can find my podcast, the cult of personality at a cult of personality.net or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a membership portion of it at chamber of reflection.com. Uh, if you want to learn more about, Tibetan Buddhism. I wrote a book called Pronaus, which is sort of reflections on the preliminary practices of Buddhist Tantra from a Western perspective. Um, I also wrote a book called Celestial Intelligences, which is about Pico della Mirandola and his Christian Kabbalism and angels. Um, my email is brothergreg at protonmail.com if anybody wants to get in touch. I'm happy to chat with people about anything we've discussed today and uh i guess if 
if people read the pronounced book and they're interested in actually doing the practices, they should email me and get in touch. But you should definitely read the book before you do that. Um, I don't know. I think that's the only other thing I want to mention is that uh, in the Chamber of Reflection, which is our members site, we're in the midst of a meditations on the tarot study circle. We're studying the book Meditations on the Tarot by Anonymous, who is Valentin Tomberg. And uh, it's been a tremendously rewarding experience to go through this book with a lot of like-minded students. Cool. And uh, I really am enjoying uncovering all of the wisdom of tarot and Christian hermeticism and how it informs and relates to my spiritual path and just wisdom in general. So if people are interested in that, please join us. That's, that's awesome. I do, I do want to ask you about, um, about that though. The, um, are you talking about not, uh, was it Nondro, right? The preliminary practices? Yeah. Nondro. Nondro. So you, you did that and that's like, like it's like a hundred thousand prostrations or something like that. Yeah, it's 111,000 prostrations, 111,000 Vajrasattva mantras, and then 111,000 mandala offerings, and then a guru yoga retreat. And how did you relate that to Western practices? Oh, through basically understanding the intention and purpose of the practice and what it accomplishes by looking at... Western sources from religion and esoteric um, schools and and sort of like helping the reader understand that these preliminary practices of Vajrayana are, they accomplish the same things that are prescribed for other spiritual paths. You know, this idea of sort of creating a, a solid foundation from which one can then begin the spiritual path where there's purification, there's taking refuge, you know, there's, there's offering everything to the divine and sort of then getting a, a tongue tip taste of what, of what that means really. So it's, it's, it's doing a lot of work and a lot of practice and a lot of learning to then be able to do the actual practices of the path. So it's a, it's a requirement to go further, but it's interesting to learn about simply because of, you know, our, even, even the Western traditions, ideas of alchemy or purification, ideas about self-knowledge and understanding the world and, and how we fit into it and how we can become better and grow. Awesome. Yeah. I, that book looks really good. It looked really good when it came out and uh, thank you for, for letting people know about it and reminding me. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on Greg. It was great. And it, I'm, I'm um, really happy that you were up to be on the show and let's definitely talk again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. It's really a pleasure. And I, I feel like we should do a swap. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 Soon. That'd be awesome. I really enjoy coming on your show. Anytime. Great. All right. Thank, thank you, you, Greg. Talk to you soon.
Okay, I hope you really, really enjoyed that. Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Check out our Mastering Meditation course, Mastering Meditation at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. And if you haven't gotten our free meditation yet, start.magic.me. All right, I will see you in class.